And remember that we are not descended from fearful men. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Five, four, three. The Kellen and Alex Show. Zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Ellen and Alex show Dan. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Dan, one question. Does God exist? Obviously not. Not if you believe the ontological argument. Thanks for listening to this edition of the <laughs> Kellen and Alex show. We no longer believe in God. Oh, man. No. You know what's funny? I was thinking about, because I wanted to open with that, you know, does God exist? But it, it feels like it cheapens the question in some way when there's not like a buildup of like, because it's like the most important, one of the most important questions everyone has to ask themselves. And like, do I believe in God? And what does that mean for my life? Right? Yeah. It's something the central issue in most people's lives. And to not address it, which a lot of people in our culture do nowadays, is uh, pretty silly. Right. I mean, if you were just like casually talking with somebody and then you went right to like, hey, do you believe in God? You know, I, in some ways, it's like, do you have a right to ask me that? Like, I mean, if a person believes in God, and it's very simple, it's like, yes, I believe in God. Um, but for people who uh, who are kind of like struggling with that, like, do I believe God exists? Do I not? It's like, there's so many arguments and issues and personal things and family. And like, it touches on pretty much most aspects of your life. Yeah. And I feel know? like particularly in our culture, the issue of the existence of God has really come to the forefront. You know, like, you know, Jordan Peterson, right? Yeah. Yeah, so people like Jordan Peterson, you know, especially it seems like young guys really struggle with the existence of God and, you know, things like that. And they're they're constantly trying to search for meaning and um, just things of that nature. And so we're going to we're going to talk about one of the arguments today, which uh, which has. Yeah, been, lead off with it. The ontological argument. Yeah. So we can start with Anselm's first formulation of the ontological. So St. Anselm. He was, what was it, the 12th century, like 1100s? Um, he was a I'm bishop, not exactly right? exactly sure. Yeah, it was pretty early on. Uh, bishop of, well, no, not Canterbury. I want to say Bishop of Canterbury. I'm not sure. Is that right? No idea. <laughs> <laughs> he was a bishop. He, he was, was in the bishop. medieval ages. He said some cool stuff. Yeah. So his basic argument so is one of the famous demonstrations of God's existence, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, maybe give us the, the shorter version. Okay. Well, do you want me to read from his thing? It's... Uh, yeah, if you long. have a yeah, briefing. All right, so I, I'll read his uh, his argument, then I'll just briefly summarize it. Go for it. And uh, then we'll talk about it. So he says, uh, Even the fool is convinced that something than which nothing greater can be thought is at least in his understanding. For when he hears of this being, he understands what he hears. And whatever is understood is in the understanding. But surely that than which a greater cannot be, can, <laughs> cannot be thought cannot be only in the understanding. For if it were only in the understanding, it could be thought to exist also in reality. Something which is greater. Therefore, if that than which a greater cannot be thought were only in the understanding, then that than which a greater cannot be thought would be that than which a greater can be thought. But that's impossible. So yeah, basically his... That's uh, philosophy, guys. That's some jargon. To to break it down into three basic bullet points, he just says, you know, God, which is the greatest conceivable being. I think we'll, we'll use that instead of that then, which nothing greater can be thought, because that's a little, okay. that's a little, uh, little, <laughs> little simpler. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So he says, uh, so it all he says, this concept obviously exists in our understanding, because when you hear God, you, you know, you hear the word God, you recognize, oh, that's the greatest thing that can be thought of. It's the, uh, you know, has all perfections. Then he says, however, if it only existed in the understanding, I could conceive of something greater than that, namely something that exists both in the mind and in reality. Therefore, God exists. So there's, I mean, let's take it historically just for a second. I, I'm, we'll get back to the argument, but like, 
monotheism really didn't start becoming the norm in cultures till like much later, right? The Jews were, uh, the Israelites were some of the first to have like monotheism. But yeah, definitely. The vast majority of humanity has had more of a pagan, like polytheistic structure to gods and not necessarily, like there was one God who was like kind of the best out of the group, right? Maybe it's Zeus or something like that. But the monotheism here, um, like for them, the greatest they could conceive was a pluralistic account of gods, right? Yeah. I mean, once we have like monotheism becoming the norm, then it's like that's the greatest from which you can conceive. But like for most of human history, the greatest they conceived was a pluralism of gods, right? The Hindu culture, mm-hmm. Greek culture, Romans, this pantheon type idea. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that bears yeah, on the argument. No, that bears time, exactly. Actually, that's one of, that's essentially Aquinas' objection, or at least half of his objection to Anselm's argument, which is saying, a lot of people don't have the idea of God as the greatest conceivable being. So if you don't have that as your idea of God, then it's just not, it's not going to work for his argument, obviously, because you don't think of the greatest conceivable being, then you can't, you know, add to it and make it greater and find a contradiction. So do you have to like assume, well, well, then you're assuming again, right? I mean, you're, you're, let's say you're presuming the person you're making this argument to has monotheistic I don't know, like, it's either a monotheistic yes or no question, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that is who Anselm is more addressing with this. I don't think it's particularly an argument to try to convince polytheists. It's more atheists who are struggling with the Christian idea of God, or maybe the I could work for the the Muslim conception of God as well, I suppose. Well, if it's not universal, then it wouldn't be, well, then it wouldn't be, um, maybe that's moving into, like, who does this argument really convince? Uh (laughs) You know, which may be getting off topic a bit, but... Um, you know, for someone who is a polytheist, it's like, no, I mean, I don't conceive of God as a unity like that. Mm-hmm. I conceive of God as a plurality in, you know, all these different gods, you can classify it as the gods, but I wouldn't say it's just a single entity being or something like that. Right. I think Hinduism is kind of similar in that way. Right. Uh, to that mindset. Um, and then for atheist, it's like, well, you know, just because I can conceive of a greatest being, does that you know, that doesn't mean he exists. That Then they go to the second premise, right? Yeah, the second premise. Um, we could think of a greater if uh, if God existed only in the understanding. So who do you think this argument really or uh, practically like be? Th- this argument, honestly, yeah, it does seem to mostly apply to people who already believe in God and already have the idea of God established from other arguments that, yeah, he has all kinds of perfections. But I, I do think it's still a useful argument. Maybe this formulation is notoriously the weakest formulation of the argument. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we'll find some stronger ones along the way. Um, but yeah, I, I would say this this argument doesn't bear on the atheist very heavily. Um, or the polytheist, as you say. But um, yeah, I, I'm not really, I'm not exactly sure if Aquinas' uh, objection is as uh, exactly what you were saying. Because Aquinas was saying that granted that everyone understands that by this word God is signified something in which nothing greater can be thought nevertheless it does not therefore follow that he understands that the word signifies exists actually but only that it exists mentally so Aquinas actually is making an even stronger objection than yours he's saying even if we do understand that you know by this word God is signified something in which nothing greater than be thought it doesn't follow um, and I could uh, explain that more in terms of 
Ed Phaser if you'd like to. Yeah, go for that. Yeah, yeah. what does Ed Phaser argue with that? Yeah. He, he rejects it as well, right? He says it doesn't doesn't necessarily follow if there's something greater. The greatest thing you can think of um, doesn't... It's better for the greatest thing you can think of to exist than not exist. Therefore, it must exist. Yeah, yeah. exactly. He's saying that doesn't follow that it must exist. Mm-hmm. Ah, but I'm I'm still kind of like I'm like sympathetic and not sympathetic at the same time with this argument because it it makes sense in one sense like if there's if you can think things you can think on being and there is some connection between your thoughts and reality then um, the highest thing you can think of uh, would be just let's say the source of all being or like the the one that keeps being in existence yeah so that, and that then would... if there's a if there's no let's say f- um, being that exists that keeps everything in being keeps your thoughts in being and all that type of stuff then then how can you even think of a highest being at that point right but i don't know exactly. if that's a demonstration <laughs> yeah i'm not i'm not sure if it's a demonstration i mean ed phaser kind of goes off the tact um he kind of on in my opinion he reads into aquinas quite a bit but essentially what he says is for aquinas all knowledge is derived from the senses you know like what i can see touch right. feel here that's where i get everything that I know, which maybe Anselm would disagree with. But that entails that you don't have a perfect conception of God because when because Aquinas holds the principle that effects not proportionate to the cause. Like the the effects which are reality are not proportionate to their cause, which is God. So you're not going to become you're not going to have this perfect conception of God as the greatest conceivable being from just the knowledge that you have, mm. which is observing creation. So you're not going to be able to to reason upwards to that concept. You're not going to be able to reason to God just from material things. The, no, the pure, no, no, saying, no, 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 because you can't do that. But no, God. Well, so Aquinas is saying like we we only know God from the senses. Like that's we right. can know His existence. Um, but this argument requires that we know His essence as the greatest conceivable being. Okay, right. So he's saying since creation is not proportionate to its cause, which is God. We don't have perfect knowledge uh, of the essence. And he, he even goes so far as to say that we don't grasp God's, Ed Phaser that is, we don't grasp God's essence to the extent that his existence is self-evident to us. That uh, that seems to be like what St. Paul says in Romans, right? Um, what could be known about God, namely his divine providence and him as creator, was plain to know to them, right? Mm-hmm. That the pagans, the people, Paul was talking about the pagans outside of Israel, right? They could know that God exists and, or that he is a creator and that he exists, that there, there is a creator God and that his divine providence orders things. But of course they couldn't know his divine essence as, you know, I am who am. That had to be revealed. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's where the I am who am, would that be, would you say that's, that has to be revealed or is that something you can like reason to i mean i think just god is like the being i mean we just look at the greeks like aristotle had an idea of god which was a god like if you read metaphysics that is constantly contemplating itself which is very close to the trinity actually which is super impressive just from pure reason so Mm -hmm. you can definitely reason towards the the existence of god um but uh what what i would say is that what, what aquinas is saying is we don't, because since God's essence and his existence are identical, to have a perfect knowledge of his essence, to have a, to know his essence, would be the same thing as to directly apprehend and see his existence. And he mm-hmm. says, 
that's obviously not the case. And obviously atheists and, you know, polytheists don't see our God as being self-evident. So it's not, this argument isn't sufficient um, to show anybody who would be useful for uh, that God exists. Wouldn't be, yeah. No, I guess it makes sense. Just to, yeah, and you can't apprehend God's essence mm-hmm. perfectly because if you did, yeah. you'd be God. Although only He can apprehend His essence. Although for this argument, I I always go back and forth because I I do like Aquinas's objection, but it doesn't seem like you need to have a perfect understanding of God's essence for the argument to work. Like because that that's what Aquinas is essentially saying. At least I I think that's what he's saying. Yeah, from, from reading it just a a, a couple times. Um, but it seems like all you really need to know is you know God is perfection and he has all perfections mm. and he's so he's infinitely perfect and it seems like you can know those kind of things like as aquinas says you can know them by analogy so maybe you don't know those perfectly but you can know them well enough for the argument to work i think right um maybe yeah. i could take another like step back meta argument thing like how necessary are demonstrations like this for believers convincing non-believers like what? What is the benefit of these arguments? Well, to give just a, an example of somebody who's been convinced by this argument, you know Michael Knowles, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah, so Michael Knowles. For anybody who doesn't know, I assume most people listening to this yeah. podcast know who Michael Knowles is. But he he works for the Daily Wire. You know, he's got a podcast. Um, and he was actually so he was studying at Yale, and when he was studying at Yale, he uh, so was struggling with his faith. Uh, I think he might have even been an atheist. I'm not exactly sure. But from looking at Alvin Plantinga's modal version of the argument, he actually converted um, just because I, I feel like that version of the argument is much more strong than this version. Um, but yeah, so this argument is obviously useful for a lot of people like in those, in those scenarios. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think the argument has use for at least some people. Um, whether or not the argument holds is a different thing. And that's a whole different question. Like, should right. you use arguments on people if you don't think they're legitimate arguments? Mm. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking of like, I don't, I keep thinking of Pascal's wager, like mm. being similar. It's like, yeah. well, I mean, if you take a bet, right? If you're, if God does exist and you believe in him, you might get rewarded if you live a good life, right? If God exists and you don't believe in him, well, that's too bad because you might go to hell or something, right? If God doesn't exist, then doesn't matter whether you believe in him or not, nothing's going to happen after death. So the only way you get out of this winning after death is believing in God. Mm. And like, for, it seems, I don't know, if you say that to an atheist and, well, they'll, they'll get angry anyways because they're atheists, but. And they're always uh, angry. <laughs> they're always angry. <laughs> like the whole. <Hulk. laughs> yeah. Shout out to all those atheists. I'm sure they're angry. Listen to this right now. Alex, I'm uh, an atheist. That's offensive. <laughs> that's offensive. <laughs> uh it's almost like you're insulting them in some way. It's like yeah. you're insulting my intelligence by saying I would want to win a game and not love the truth. And it's just like, love the truth. What is your basis why, for truth? Yeah, why do you care about loving the truth? Yeah, why do you first care all, about being right? First of all, That's if you're, I, I feel like today in today's culture, if you're an atheist, you're also necessarily a materialist. That's the only game in town. So that means truth is actually a physical thing. It's a bunch of chemicals firing in your yeah. little monkey brain <laughs> yeah exactly and you're trying to like actively that's what i don't get about these you know the horsemen of the what is it four horsemen of the atheist what is it anyways yeah dawkins hitchens those guys dennett whatever yeah it's like why are they so so emphatic in trying to convince humanity that they're the greatest idea that's ever been you know, we've ever had of god the greatest conceivable being. the greatest conceivable <laughs> being is a total lie 
and somehow that's going to make people better. Like it's just it's not it's not like really intelligent. It's just really stupid. Well, yeah. you know, like the Psalms said it back in the day. The fool said in his heart, "There is no God." <laughs> it's like I think that's how we should approach these people because yeah. atheism is far less compelling than absurdism for me. Like yeah. I would rather if if atheism right if there was no God or whatever. I wouldn't be actively out there trying to convince people there's no God because it wouldn't be a reason for that. I'd be more absurdist than that. Yeah. I'd just be like, well, look, just either. I think Ivan takes it really good in uh, Brothers Karamazov because he's mm-hmm. an atheist. He's like, um, Alyosha asked him like, well, how are you going to live life? Alyosha's younger brother, like, how are you going to live life as an atheist now? And he said, well, I'm just going to drink the cup of my passions till I'm like 35. And then I'm either going to join the Jesuits or I'm going to hang myself. <laughs> that was his solution oh, to it. Don't join the Jesuits today. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, because for him at the time, the Jesuits were like, life has complete mm-hmm. meaning and I'm going to, you know, that's the meaning. But otherwise it has completely no meaning. Um, yeah, I just find, I find those atheistic, um, I find it less compelling than like the absurdist or the existentialist or whatever else. But I don't know, we're, we're getting aside, uh-huh. aside from ontological, but I, I find it in the same way with Pascal's wager. It's like if someone came across Anselm's argument who wasn't even open to the idea of God, they would just reject it yeah, outright. Out of you know? yeah. I think Pascal's wager too, they're just like, you're just insulting me. You know, There's kind of like a will to believe that needs to precede arguments like this. And maybe this can be an occasion for belief yeah. like it was for Michael Knowles, but mm-hmm. That's where proofs for me and demonstrations, like first cause, first mover, all that stuff. I think it's wonderful and it can be an occasion to believe, but it really does depend on like, does the person have a will to believe? Is there grace present there? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what comes down to it. God has to call you to him, which he always is, but some people are much less open to that than others. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think Anselm's pretty convincing. That's because I see, I, I believe in God, you know, at this point. So. I mean, his, his version where he, instead of using um, regular existence saying, you know, God exists in the understanding. However, if he only exists, I could conceive of a greater one, namely one, both in the mind and reality. Because um, the, the main reason, actually, philosophers didn't really reject it for the reasons we have, like in the past, um, mm. like in, at least in, in modern times. Philosophers haven't gone really with Aquinas' objection saying we don't even know what God is, but they more take the tack of saying being isn't really a true predicate. They go off of Kant. So that's Kant, right? Yeah. That's what okay. that's what Kant says. Yeah, explain that. Critique of pure reason. Right. So Kant basically just says being is a prerequisite for predicates. But it's which predicates are, you know, descriptions like omnipotent would be a predicate, you know, like blue would be a predicate. So he says, for anything, um, or maybe I could even just read uh his passage. Yeah, please. Um, Uh, actually, that's really long. I'm not going to read that. This con, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, con. Yeah, he just says. Well, for okay, for his. Uh, I'll just boil it down into one. By the point. way, I'm still extremely salty that proletariat members decided Kant was one of the top five most intelligent men of all time. Okay. Well, his objections. But anyways, I I understand Kant. All right. No, he, his, he's his, important. But anyways, go no, ahead. No, I think he's stupid. Don't worry. Okay. Good. <laughs> all right. Yeah. We're in agreement. By the way, I just like to point out, you saved the most attractive member of the proletariat for last. I so. did. I did. I excellent. Had to make sure it was a really good. Just, I, I know you all can't see me, but trust me, I'm so attractive. <laughs> we'll take a picture at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm excited. Anyways, the, right, the, the example he uses um, for being not being a true predicate is saying a hundred real dollars is not conceptually better than a hundred imaginary ones. He's saying the concept of a hundred real dollars 
and the concept of 100 fake dollars is the exact same concept. So that means that being is not really a, a true predicate because it doesn't increase like the goodness of the concept for it to exist because it's the same in both cases. So that's what he says about Anselm's argument for the existence of God. Wait, 100 real dollars is not be- better conceptually than 100 conceptual dollars? Yeah, so just think well, of it like this. Think- well, real dollars are real dollars. That's why we give them the <laughs> adjective real. Okay, now, okay. imagine 100 dollars. Yes. Now, imagine 100 fake dollars. The idea in your brain is the same thing. It's the same, the same dollars are there, either case. In the brain, but in reality, if there was 100 real dollars here, yeah, but the idea of those hundred real dollars for you would be the same as the idea of the hundred fake dollars. Like not not like fake, like as in counterfeit. Just the yeah. just the idea of those dollars in both cases is the same. Isn't that a tautology? It's just like idea of oh well, he's trying to prove that. Yeah, what he's, he's trying to prove that the highest conceivable being. What he's trying to say. Oh, there's no okay. Is you can't your idea you of it doesn't imply. Yeah, any he, being. yeah, he's saying like like existence adding existence on to the greatest conceivable being doesn't do doesn't make it a greater conceivable being so then the argument would fail ah okay yeah so it's do a very like, it's a very like interesting that? objection Does that, see is that compelling I, to you i think <laughs> it's really interesting by the way, i i think that objection works in every case except for anselm's because anselm thinks that the concept of god and his existence are the same thing so in this is in this one case, I don't think like Kant's objection actually like works at all, and it also doesn't work for Anselm's second formulation, where he uses necessary existence instead of just regular existence. Which it's hard to argue that something having necessary existence uh, doesn't have something additional added onto its concept, because like a coffee mug is a lot different from a coffee mug that necessarily exists that cannot fail to exist, because. They seem like very different things. It's kind of hard to argue that necessary existence isn't a true predicate. So God, because he's a necessary being, Kant's argument fails because once you say highest conceivable being, it must exist. Well, I'm saying I'm saying two, I'm saying two separate things. I'm saying okay. I'm saying Kant's objection fails for the first argument, which most people think it succeeds for. Like Kant's this objection of Kant's kind of killed the argument for a long time. Really. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. people recently yeah. have been reviving it, right? Like, there's a number yeah, of with Catholic Planica. philosophers, and honestly, yeah, I really do. I really do like the argument with with Planica's version. Like, I I always go back and forth. I'm really undecided on the argument, but like, I mean, me too. Yeah. <laughs> this is, this I, is why I'm glad we're talking. I, about I was, it, yeah, I, I was, I I've was looking never figured out to where it. I fall on this. Yeah, I was hoping we could just reason together and decide on the spot <laughs> as long as you know whether or not we like. After it. two hours, ah, oh, we don't believe in God anyways. <laughs> um, but yeah, okay. So Planica, he. That's pl- planning it. That's how you say it, right? I think so. We're, okay. we're, yeah, we're going to say it. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We'll just say it, even if we pronunciate it wrong. But anyways, um, what was his um, articulation of? Yeah, I'll pull it up. He has five premises. He's 20th century? Like he's recent planning? Um, yeah, 1974, I think, was the date oh, geez. that he did it. Yeah, yeah, so it's been yeah very recent like by philosophical standards. So yeah, his modal version... Um, Modal just means he uses like the word necessary in possible worlds and stuff. So it's just oh, he takes Lewis's like possible worlds. Yeah, and stuff? yeah. Oh, I think okay. this is this is definitely oh, is the, like in all possible worlds, God must exist. That type of stuff. Yeah, 
<laughs> oh, well, go for it. <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah, it's a it's a it's a banger. Oh, I'm say. excited. Whew. I'm excited. Guys, get your philosophical engines revving. Yeah, that really. I, to quote William Lane Craig, this argument really turns my crank. You <laughs> 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 was thinking about a different argument, but okay, great. That's my favorite quote of all time from William Lane. Craig. This really turns my crank. <laughs> Jeez. All right, go for it, Dan. <laughs> okay, uh, so his premises are. It is possible that there be a being that has maximal greatness. So that's the first okay. premise. I think that's reasonable. I think it's kind of hard to argue. What is he saying greatness is, though? Um, he defines it earlier as having omniscience, omnipresence, and something else. Ooh, it's a pretty loaded term. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, he, he defines all his terms. I didn't print out the whole thing because yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm lazy and don't like reading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Calls shouldn't. Um, so then he says, so there is a possible being that in some world W has maximal greatness. So, or you could reformulate world that. World W, yeah, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, one. I'm just saying, you know, there's some some possible world where this being exists. Um, then he says, a being has maximal greatness in a given world only if it has maximal excellence in every world. And that's okay. the, that seems like it's the big one. It's more David Lewis, possible world semantics. The big one. Yeah. Oh, oh no, no, never mind. Then he he defines it later. He says a being has maximal excellence in a given world only if it has omniscience, omnipotence, and moral perfection in that world. And that's okay. the whole argument. Whoa, I missed something. Wait, so the you know the omnipotent, omnipresent. Wait, just not om, omnipresent. Om, omnipotent, all Omniscient, good, moral perfection, all knowing, moral perfection. Yeah. It, See, if it exists in, wait, wait, I missed it somewhere. I'm yeah, lost. Exactly. Okay. Right. No, that's how this argument works, though, as you you're read it. You're supposed to get it's, lost. It's so, no, you're not supposed to get lost. It's, just, <laughs> it's, it's so quick. And then it just hits you like a ton of bricks. And just like, I feel like I've been robbed somehow. Like somebody has stolen my belief. I think that's how people think of Anselm <laughs> yeah, stuff, too. It's like, exactly. can you think of the greatest thing that exists? It's like, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how did like I just, get there? You know, pulling stuff out of your, uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pulling it out of a hat. You know, yeah. here's the rabbit. We uh-huh. just found it. Anyways. Okay, go back. Just. Okay, so yeah. To me again. His first premise seems pretty reasonable to most people. It is possible that there be a being that has maximal greatness. Okay, right. we'll go All with right. that premise for now. One. Second premise. So there is a possible being that in some world W has maximal greatness. And that just means like you can imagine a world where this thing is existing, which is what it means that there is a possibility that it's Okay, exists. I'm going to stop you there for a second. But it's I, so reasonable. This Don't is, stop me. <laughs> well, well, I mean, is it an imaginary world or is he admitting these worlds actually exist? Because Lewis, that's one of the debates with Lewis who yeah. invented the possible world semantics. I know very tiny bit about it, but whether Lewis actually believes that there's universes in which the only difference from this one, worlds where the only difference from this one is instead of Dan frowning at me at that instant, he frowned at me an instant after. Wow. Why <laughs> or just, you know, it was just like like that just for a second. Right? I always frown. I'm one Anyways, frowny boy. Well, that's how you think, right? You frown. Um, <laughs> but he literally thinks all those worlds actually exist. Does he? I That's the debate. I think that's what he says. Huh. Okay. Now, My for me, that's yeah. a, that's that a, is a, claim, uh, yeah. that's a metaphysical view of reality that is quite large. I would tend to do this. I didn't know that. I just, I assume. I think a, that's what he thinks. If I, it's I never just conceptual it. though, then it's like, how is this any different than Anselm? Um, well, it, it's different than Anselm. It just seems it, like you're putting Anselm within a Lewis framework. I mean, well, it is, it is a reformulation of Anselm. Okay, argument. right. Got so it. that that's what it is. So it's going to be okay, similar so if to Anselm. The greatest being exists in some world, W. Glad you picked W. 
you know, why not? Yeah. Uh, then it must exist in all possible worlds. Yeah, well, okay. he's saying like it would be greater if it existed in every possible world. Instead of in just that yeah. world. Instead of just the one world that was possible. Which, yeah, so I, it I guess it does, it, it does sort of hinge exactly on... And Planningham points this out. He says the goal of this argument isn't to show really that God exists. Like he's saying like what he wants to try and do or like what he thinks it does is forces you to think like it's either impossible for God to exist or God exists. So like God's either impossible or necessary. That's what this argument is trying to force people into. And people usually don't want to say like it's impossible that God exists because that's kind of pretentious, you know. It's impossible that I'm wrong. <laughs> hmm. So if if it wasn't that God existed in... um. It's conceivable that he would exist in world W, but if it wasn't possible for uh, God to exist even in one world, that means it's a logical impossibility for God to exist. So. And then yeah. if it's, um, uh, so it's a logical necessity that he exists in all worlds. Oh man, I get lost in the the yeah, Lewis sauce. Honestly, I do. I, I okay. I feel like that is. I'd love to know how this. Like Michael Knowles took this too, because yeah, I know. I, I was actually searching, searching the web for for where he talked about this. I only, I, I just found like a brief article on the internet which just said like, oh, he converted because of this. But like, I would love to see if he had like a YouTube video talking about that because he's an intelligent guy, you know. So yeah. I, I assume he put a lot of thought into this, into his uh, deepest beliefs. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, for people out there who are who have made it this far, who are not very philosophically minded, uh. Probably like well, there's a lot of weird. So summary again of Anselm: greatest conceivable being, it's better to exist in reality rather than just in the mind. Therefore, it exists in reality. And we have been oscillating back and forth for with like, yeah, we like it a lot. Uh, doesn't really work. That's why I've been with my entire life with this argument. <laughs> yeah, and I think I'll probably continue to be that way. However, both of us firmly believe that God does exist. Yeah. So, um, and I, I'm going back to this practical part of it. Just because I think it, it it does help us ground it. So there's other um, there's other you call them demonstrations, proofs of of God's existence of the first mm-hmm. mover, right? So we have the five the famous five ways of Aquinas. Um, there's uh, a lot of other formulations you sometimes throw in there. Pascal's wager, um, and it seems all these things are really good arguments and frameworks and stuff. But um, there's also the the difficulty of belief right yeah there's like the very human element of well this may this argument may really convince uh michael knowles but Mm -hmm. for me it's like whatever and then if you try and say this argument to you know someone who just has no philosophical interest at all it may just be like i don't really care about that i just believe in god you know what i mean yeah it's really crazy how you know uh how diverse the um motivations for for belief are let's say you know grace works within us to uh prompt us to believe because it's god god's operation first right so it's not like so even if you read this with if you read this complete with without um any grace or belief um or will to believe you would just like no reject mm-hmm. stamp it out no but if you're Michael Knowles, it could be an instant of grace, and exactly. then all of a sudden you believe. It's and crazy, right? I feel like this this argument, even if it doesn't work, which uh, I'm definitely not convinced that it does, because any argument that I oscillate back and forth on, I'm not convinced about. Yeah. Um, but I think there is like a, quite a lot of psychological appeal, at least from an, an evangelistic perspective, just because like, because how we were talking about earlier, it kind of hits you like a ton of bricks. Like, it's so quick. There's like, 
is what three actual premises in the argument. So when an atheist reads that, like, I mean, it has the has the potential just kind of knock you on your butt and at least like sort of think like, oh, what if I what if I am wrong? Like, is it a possibility? Because if you if you have a hard time and you can't pick out in an argument where it's wrong and it's so short, so simple, you see it right there. But you just you can't convince yourself why exactly it's wrong. Hmm. Then at least it forces you to think about the possibility that you are wrong. It opens you up to that possibility. Yeah. Because before, I, I, like, you were convinced God doesn't exist. Yeah. I feel like this argument can at least humble you a little bit and make you think, um, which has definitely made, made me, I mean, I was never in doubt about the existence of God, but it definitely made me, definitely humbled me that I hated it so much. Like, I looked at this <laughs> argument, I'm like, this is freaking BS, you know, like, this yeah. is stupid, but I couldn't find out exactly where it's wrong or where I hated it. Um, so it's definitely an intellectually humbling argument. Alvin Plantinga is a genius. Um, so yeah, I think it's definitely useful for atheists in some respect. It like it haunts you in some ways. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> you just like wake up, th- pop off the pillow, like oh, I'm logical argument. Ah. Yeah. No, I I'm I'm serious about that like haunting idea. Like some ideas are so um it for me, it feels like it takes me a long time. If an argument's really convincing in that same way where I can't tell like if it's true or not, or I have to understand it. It'll take me, it's almost like, uh, you know, like when you dream, like you put all your memories back together, whatever, with like REM sleep and all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have to go through that cycle like a hundred times before I'm like, <laughs> wait, how does this argument actually play through? Um, and uh, yeah, and I think these arguments, like you were saying, are really, can be really useful. You know, even if you're like, I'm not completely convinced on the first read through. And because uh, it's not like you can just slap this in front of people and they just like, Oh, I believe in no. God now, you know. I mean, mean, that's never the case with anything. It's never the like, case. Yeah, exactly. Like what Protestants do, you can't just well, whack people in the head with a Bible. It's not gonna. Well, I mean, <laughs> oh darn! I can try. I guess <laughs> maybe eventually. Uh, just throw Bibles at people. Long enough. Enough. Enough repetition. Repetition's yeah. the key. <laughs> you know, there was this. Uh, well, my favorite book, Brothers Karamazov. It's up on my shelf. Um, there's a part in it where uh, he talks about Thomas, uh, Saint Thomas, not Aquinas, but original Saint Thomas. And he says, you know, what was it that led Thomas to believe? Did he believe hmm. because he saw Christ and then he was like totally convinced? Or did he want to believe? And then that's what led him to believe, right? Because uh-huh. if Thomas wanted to, he could still deny it, even if it was right in front of his face. Yeah, Like there was a will to believe underneath that. Like he wanted to do it, but he just needed that occasion of Christ coming to him and being like, hey, look. Put the hands in the side, all right? <laughs> Put the hands in the side. You will believe, okay? Um, and then he willed to, and then that's when he said, my Lord and my God. But if it wasn't there, uh, you know, Thomas could have come up with like, oh my gosh, I'm hallucinating. Uh-huh. This is insane. He's dead. I saw him dead. How is he back? I don't understand. That's just the weird thing about mm-hmm. about being human. Like we're, we're stuck in this, like we need those material things and material like, like people who can really convince you with faith, mm-hmm. right? Those occasions to believe, I guess. Yeah, and it seems like most people, I mean, I could be wrong here. Maybe there's some exceptions, but it seems like most people like to believe in God. Like at, at the bare minimum, like it's a nice story. It's it's nice knowing there's a guy out there who cares about you. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Which I think, honestly, Michael Knowles makes the point a lot of the time. It's, uh, it, it, it's very, you know, it's, it's a very nice thing to believe in. And most people would probably... Like if given like a complete choice of just like, you know, oh, it's the, the truth value of this doesn't matter. It's like, oh, yeah, I'd probably go with the one that's more fun. Mm. Opium of the masses, huh, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it is the opium of the masses. Okay. Just saying like 
all else equal, it's probably nicer to believe in God than not to. Yeah, like, like it's, a, it's a better concept. Although the atheist would definitely counter with saying, oh, but, you know, we'll get burned to death or whatever if we... Like if we fail in the belief or whatever. So there's that. Not, not a bad idea. Not sure. <laughs> like never no, mind. I mean, yeah. I, I find it, I find yeah. it a bit nicer just thinking like, oh, there's some objective meaning at least. Like, I think that's psychologically nicer than thinking like on a nihilistic terms. Cause you know, I was a nihilist for a little while, you know, back, really back in the day, back mm. in, back in high school, depressed Dan phase. <laughs> Classic. That what were you like? Were you wearing like some grunge stuff back then, or no? No. Okay, no. that would have been Nothing hilarious. Like Dan with some like grunge <laughs> gear on. Yeah, yeah, man, nihilism's the reality. Nihilism, dude. no meaning. Stupid. Well, I mean, okay, I feel like that's kind of the main objective, like objection most atheists like sort of have with theism isn't really one particular argument or anything like that. It's just more sort of like a whole idea of this seems kind of far fetched. Like it seems like a little bit too much. And like maybe even maybe I could even imagine like a deistic sort of God, but you know, the Christian God, like, you know, with all these Bible stories, you know, like, you know, I think like Joe Rogan put it as like, oh, a bunch of goat herders in the desert writing crap on like parchment or whatever. So like that. So they just think, you know, it's it's too far fetched. And you know, I just it's not like any rejection of any particular argument, just kind of a a holistic rejection of a worldview because you you think it's just too fantasy like. Hmm. Yeah, and it does seem to like, then it's like, okay, well, convince me God exists. That seems yeah. to be the next thing. It's like, well, you're telling me there's one God, he made everything, right? And and we're supposed to worship him, mm-hmm. and he's going to like save you from death after death. And honestly, it, it's hard to contend with it with people when when they like that. When it's but then like at the same time, it's like almost open. everyone, near the vast majority of humanity does believe in that. Yeah, in God in some way. And honestly, I, I was just reading a bit of C.S. Lewis on miracles, and what what he points out is like atheists like reject it on this sort of like grounds of totality that I was talking about. But really, they have to reject naturalism on the same level because you have no reason to believe that your faculty of reason is accurate or accurate enough because it's the product of this, you know, genetic process where things have been thrown out in favor of other things based purely on their utility for survival yeah. and reproduction. So there's you can't really say anything's true exactly because you have no way of knowing whether the truth in your brain exactly matches up to the truth of the objective world. Um so what you come to say as a naturalist though is this is all there is. But it's mm. on what grounds can you make that claim given that you, that claim doesn't even have to you're, be you're true because there's no truth to back it yeah, up yeah you know? so well yeah so you're you're well you you're rejecting stuff on a basis that you just don't have you don't have the basis of reason and trying to give a proof for your reason based on naturalism isn't going to work because you already rejected reason. rejected reason basically yeah and truth so it's like yeah, it's a, it's just a bunch of chemicals firing in your monkey brain, like I said earlier. Yeah. So it's kind of it, it's kind of hard to to know anything for certain um, if you if you don't have a, if you don't have a grounding. It's a very isolating principle. Once you because it seems like you were saying it, it's like okay, convince me uh, that God exists. You know, there's such a big worldview. Like like why am I supposed to accept that there's a God and all that stuff? There's so much I'd have to accept and so much I'd have to reason to. But mm-hmm. at the same time, if you reject it outright, it's like, okay, well, why reason with people? Why do any... Like, isn't that the postmodern critique is... The postmoderns are like, well, all speech is violence and it's power yeah. games. And so, 
and and they're not saying it that's how it should be, but they're saying that's how humans work because we're exactly. just these deterministic animals basically, and we're just going to fight each other. And this language stuff where we're doing like seeking after truth, I think Nietzsche says it, says it explicitly too that the the will to truth is just a, a veiled will to power. Mm. And if you can convince people of these grand ideas, then you can get more power because they're seeing the world through your eyes. Basically, I mean, yeah. that, that's exactly the worldview that uh, yeah, you just you reject all. Um, of these, you know, fairy ideas of you know, like all this stuff. And you, you just say like, we're going to base our ideas on what works. That's, that's the idea what works and what gets us what we want. Like we're going to, we're, we basically they say like reason is useful for stuff like building a table and putting, you know, food on that table. But, you know, when you start getting into stuff like truth and, you know, you start talking about all these fancy philosophical concepts, no progress is made and you just get confused. So at the end of the day, it's better just to do what works the best for you. And generally what that is, is grabbing as much power as you possibly can, which now we're kind of getting into territory where you're very familiar with with Nietzsche. <laughs> Ooh, Nietzsche, which I've had to like set aside <laughs> for a while. But No, I know next to nothing about Nietzsche, but uh, if you can relate oh, it, go just, ahead. Just roll off my, my grand teacher, <laughs> Nietzsche. Out of anyone I've read, he has some of the most beautiful prose like the way he puts things in sentences it's just like a, a powerhouse of a sentence and stuff but yeah. at the end of the day you have to just be like look he's making a lot of a lot of assumptions and they're really convincing and they sound really good but his assumptions are once again like you were saying yeah. these naturalistic stuff it's taking the complete reverse order instead of starting with god and reasonability and reason and stuff he's starting with the whole hermeneutic of power and this is just what we are as humans because mm -hmm. we're necessarily animals. There's no God and all that stuff. Yeah. Now, he's not unsophisticated. He he understands that when you get rid of the idea of God, uh, you know, his famous God is dead quote, yeah. God is dead and we have killed him and there there won't be enough water to wash away the blood. That's the full quote, mm -hmm. quote right? It's The idea is if you unhinge people from God and that type of reality and that that overarching narrative of all of reality, then what's to stop them from just killing each other and eating each other yeah that point. nothing like why yeah nothing exactly. except more power for you <laughs> nietzsche's idea was we're going to move to the next evolution of man that man has been on this evolutionary process and he's finally getting over the old gods and he's figuring out that the as dostoevsky would put it the man god is coming mm -hmm. the god man came but now the man god will come which well, is that exactly makes sense on the naturalist worldview though because what you're saying is you know truth isn't a real thing like Things are more true in accordance with just how much they work for us, like materially. So you're saying that's your standard of truth. So it totally yeah. makes sense that, you know, truth is based on you. You are the center of truth. Like you are the source of truth. So it makes sense once you become better, more developed, then truth is better. And that's that's what you are. You are truth. <laughs> you're creating your truth as you're exactly. going. Yeah. Exactly. So and it, that's it, what it, Nietzsche it, says explicitly. You know, yeah. I mean, his, his major work that everybody knows is beyond good and evil. It's like exactly. those terms have been shackling us for ages, right? And it's so much better than the the modern idea of just saying, you know, live your best life. Like, yeah, I love <laughs> freaking 19th century with Nietzsche. Like those kind of atheists are way better than the atheists we have today. Whew, let me tell you. Seriously. And and there are people you can actually contend with their arguments. These these yeah. modern guys are just like, oh, that's so silly. I, I can't believe they believe in you sheeple, you know, going with this God stuff. Exactly. Like Nietzsche knows that you get rid of God, it's not just gonna be pretty. Like, and by the way, the 20th century was anything but pretty. Like uh -huh. most wars, most people killed out of any century. And it really is, I think, 
Europe and the United States and then the rest of the world contending with a a uh, a new godless era where yeah. and and nothing's that's the other thing about about the idea of God is it it is unifying because it it's true and and you have something beyond your own will that tempers your will mm-hmm. right if you take Hobbes right with his idea of the sovereign that the sovereign um it it uh, controls the wills of those under the sovereign. And uh, instead of, you know, me and Dan are, are sitting here having a great conversation, but that's only, you know, for, for Hobbes, that's only because something's constraining our will to, uh, like it's in our mutual benefit at this point in time because we've huh. reached a contract under a sovereign. And the sovereign for Hobbes is like the whole system that's set up in America and the U.S. where, um, you know, if I did violence to you to try and gain some type of advantage, then there would be violence done to me by the sovereign because we've hmm. consented to living under the sovereign. And uh, Josh knows far more about this than I do yeah, because he's, sure. he's read a lot he's more about it. He's always talking about that. Yeah. But um, if you remember back, you go back into into uh, yeah ancient Israel, uh, when they first started asking God for a king, God was like pretty insulted by that. <laughs> you remember he's <laughs> like, I'm your king, right? Yeah. I'm supposed to be your king. And then I mediate my kingship through these judges. And it's mm-hmm. an imperfect relationship because Christ hadn't come yet. But God was like the sovereign over Israel through the law and through the mediation of Moses at that point in time. And um, anyways, going back to Hobbes, uh, in the state of nature where there's no sovereign between me and you, I'm laying a claim over all of reality. Yeah. So I'm laying claim to possession and dominion over everything. You're also laying claim to that as well. And we come into conflict Mm -hmm. and either I kill you and then I move on or we assent to a uh, a sovereign that's above us that tempers our will and we give the right to violence to the sovereign it's kind of funny that's what that seems sort of connected to the idea of liberalism in general just saying you know we have all of these people a, a different conclusion obviously but we have all of these people with different claims on reality mm-hmm. so how do we resolve their conflicts well it seems like the most reasonable way to do that is just try to spread out the power as much as possible. So what we try to do is give everyone the same amount of influence. So then, like, no one is, no one arbitrarily has more power than another person. Um, exactly. They, so yeah, that seems to be the basis of liberalism. That crazy. Yeah, and and I'm I'm in a political philosophy class with Dr. Jones right now, who he argues that Hobbesian that Hobbes is the father of modern politics. That basically what came out of modern politics, what he sees is uh, the debates between liberalism and socialism, and then the branch off, like the pagan branch off of that being nationalism. Mm. Those ideologies are all Hobbesian with sovereignty and power games and state of nature and all that type of stuff that Hobbes had theorized. That was played out in different expressions in liberalism, socialism, and then the pagan huh. branch off of nationalism. And that's the 20th century. And all of those don't admit of God intervening with grace to make a Christian society where people temper their wills well, yeah. under sovereignty under, under, under the, the sovereignty, sovereignty of Christ, yeah. which is mediated through the Pope and the bishops and the priest. And then the whole church obviously receives grace to live um, the Christian life. That's funny, yeah, because... Yeah, it seems like we had a uh, a proletariat on this a while ago. Actually, right. it seemed like where we we came to the conclusion that the idea of liberalism sort of had as its source the idea that the government has both claims to authority and to the distribution of, or not distribution of that authority enforcement of the the precepts that are given by that authority. Um, 
Whereas on the Christian vision, it's God who has the authority. He has the one who who ultimately is the maker of the laws. And then the civil government is merely charged with like discharging those, right. enforcing those laws. Um, yeah. It's a crazy... And if you take out God out of that, then it's like, what's to keep people from just killing each other? You know, it, if they can get the power or they can um, supersede the sovereign or take advantage of the sovereign. Because like, we talked last time with uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? Oh, and right, yeah. It's like, were they wrong? Well, they won. Like most of the arguments pro Hiroshima and Nagasaki, like dropping the bombs. Very was, consequentialist. We, consequentialist. Yeah. We won. And if there's no God or religion involved there, it's like, what are you going to argue against that? They did win. <laughs> So you I know, think maybe the, they, maybe it had bad effects on like global politics after that. You could argue, you know, it, it spurred Russia to to be even quicker with their their nuclear program. So it was bad for our politics long term. But then that's a consequentialist argument at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not saying anything about like God, reality. No, um, it's just saying this will just this is materially better for us. Therefore, we should do it. It's better. Therefore, we yeah. should do it. <laughs> <laughs> not not even therefore we should do it. It's just we will do it. There's a determinism there, right? Oh, that's interesting. I actually, I, I've never picked up on that. There's no morality whatsoever. It's just saying, once we you will get rid do of the morality, thing that's best for you, us. You pretty much, and I think that's what a lot of the modern philosophers got as well that were, um, that were denied grace and denied God is that humanity is ridiculously predictable when there's, um, when if, if man doesn't have a, a rational soul that can, temper its will by God's will and by law and religion and stuff, then he's immensely predictable. That's true. As predictable as any wild animal, basically. Yeah, I mean, you exactly. Just, you yeah. say, oh, he's going to work in his best interests with all his faculties at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that totally makes sense. You just, yeah. I'll, I'll predict, I can predict nearly exactly what you'll do based on what's, what looks like it's best for yeah. you. You're going to try and <laughs> maximize money, sex, and power. Okay, great. Now I can predict all most of your actions with pretty good accuracy. Now, try and predict like a Saint Francis or something like that. Like what what is he going to do next? You know, you can't predict somebody like that because it's so the you know it, it's 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 superseding what's human and you're imitating something of the divine and that yeah. point, right? Poverty yeah. and Well, that that was Nietzsche's critique, right? It's like they they're doing the exact opposite of what's best for them basically. You know, like yeah. all these all these Christians they're, you know, with their slave morality or whatever there <laughs> yeah exactly they're, they're not really i mean he ultimately he makes a claim right that they are acting in their own interests but like individually it doesn't seem like any of them are really acting in their own interests mm-hmm. which is bizarre from a naturalist perspective which honestly i feel like that's probably part of the reason why there's such like vehemence how do you say that vehemence vehemence on the side of uh of atheists today because they don't yeah. really understand the motivations exactly outside of personal loss and gain hmm yeah, it's all personal loss and gain. Yeah, which, which honestly, yeah, that's that's why I really love the the ontological argument because all these all these atheists, you know, who they're they're going through the YouTube, watching all the hitch slapped videos, you know, <laughs> finally they get the reverse hitch slap for a little while, you know, mm-hmm. ontological argument just get well, slapped at them. Yeah, yeah, and who like it promotes such a weird culture. Like I, I wish they were as sophisticated as Nietzsche in some ways. Cause then it actually be like fun it's to so argue with them. It's so disappointing. It's so disappointing. Did you ever watch the debate that uh, Hitchens had with uh, William Lane Craig? No, I didn't. Yeah. Let's they're just, all, they're all disappointing because it's just yeah. like, well, let, let's just say, yeah, yeah. He kind of, he did kind of tear him apart a little bit. So I'll, I'll let you watch the wait, debate. Craig, yourself. Jordan Potter right. or, or Hitchens did. 
Uh, Hitchens died. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I, I know dead, but like no, 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 no. Like in the argument, like died. <laughs> Not like literally. Oh, got it. He well, he's also, dead too. Yeah. He also literally died. You know. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, you know, God rest his soul. But yeah, uh, God rest he, his soul. he died long before he physically died by the hands of William Lane Craig. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to watch it then. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, we'll get William Lane. Yeah, we'll get him out here. Mm-hmm. Craig. He's supposed to be. Uh, oh my gosh! Yeah. Next year. That's is that right? so no, exciting. In the spring. In the spring, right? That is so exciting. Yeah, we're really excited about that. Wow. That's gonna be really cool. Yeah, I wish there was a, a sophisticated, and, it, and it's really this modern atheism is very modern. Like it didn't, if you go back to the pagan past, they, um, I think the people who were leading, let's say Rome or whatever, kind of believed in the gods, but mostly didn't, mostly understood that religion is a very, if if you don't believe in God, religion could be a very powerful tool to unify your country mm-hmm. and get people to assent to your power, right? I mean, the Old Testament, you take Egypt the the pharaoh was god for the egyptians yeah right oh, and, i never thought of it like that yeah actually. and so and the 10 plagues that god sent were all plagues intended to demonstrate to the egyptians that their gods were fake oh right so like, turning yeah. the nile into blood they worship the the river gods right uh sending locusts on their harvest that's against their harvest gods darkness over the earth that's against ray the sun god right all 10 plagues were basically the one god saying Look, all your fake gods are fake gods, by the way, and I'm the one true God. And it was to convince the people. But there's this impetus in the ancient societies to to deify their sovereign, Mm -hmm. to deify because the sovereign, taken Hobbesian terms, represents everything good. I mean, Mm. what what could be good outside of, you know, you got your harvest, you have your women, you got the Nile River, you got, you know, like the sun and all this type of stuff. Like, yeah, that's the grace there is. And then God, you know, steps in and just <laughs> freaking sends plagues. And it's like, let my yeah. people go. And Im- implied in that as well is you should be my people too, mm-hmm. right? At some point, just Israel's first in, yeah. the, in the primary. I, I do actually like the imagery that you've put though, because it, it's implying, you know, like the sovereign, the one who organizes and keeps everything going, the one who, you know, distributes the law and order into our society, which gives us all those good things. Like mm. that's God. It's like, and, and for a, there's honestly something noble about polytheism I've always found um, in that, you know, they always they always are sort of doing the, that kind of idea where they're, you know, their sovereign is like God in there. Like he's the one distributing order, just like God is actually the one who is literally instantiating order, not just, you know, organizing a few things. But yeah. it, honestly, it is a little bit noble. And then when you cooperate with God and you he gives you his strength to work it out, you are bringing reality to be more in tune with his will right mm-hmm. and you're 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 making uh yeah you're incarnating right in some sense right like christ being all all of god and all of humanity and humanity being the highest material thing uh it's an incarnational model it's it's all it was all looking forward to that because even when the israelites give us a king and god said i'm your king but you need he still needed mediators for that kingship mm-hmm. right because as humans, we're not just disembodied souls. We need uh, material things to mediate yeah. that. Just like Aquinas is saying, you need sensation to to reach to the ideas, yeah. the forms in Aristotelian language. So in the same way, it's like in order for God to truly become king in some ways, that's yes. why the incarnation yeah. is such a big deal is because now he's human. He is the mediator. The mediator. Yeah. We read this today in Philippians, right? With... Um, Every knee shall bend in heaven on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And like, mm-hmm. there's a reason why lordship is a huge deal too. It's not just God in this abstract sense. He's like Lord over all humanity by divine right mm-hmm. as being God. It's like, then there's no other name because that's the name of the sovereign. That's the name of the true yeah. sovereign that actually works for your good and doesn't just enslave you. Because the the pagan nations, you're basically being enslaved, right? By your passions uh-huh. and by your ascent to them. And they're mm-hmm. the ones winning, right? The people at the top of the sovereignty. But yeah. yeah, it's insane. And once you lose that that idea, it's like, man, anything goes at that point. Yeah. <laughs> right? Honestly, just one thought I've had on the incarnation, you just you just reminded me of it, is um so I, I find it very interesting because you know, Jesus didn't become or like God didn't become an angel, you know, mm-hmm. like like one of them. He became a man, which is interesting because it seems like that means and may, maybe I maybe I'm wrong with this. This is just sort of my own speculation, but that means like Okay, so what differentiates us from angels to make him become one of us instead of one of them? Um, well, it's it's you know our our bodies, our material, our appetites. So it seems like oh wow, so that's the thing that he loves differently about us than he loves about the angels. It's like mm. that seems the specific that that would be the thing that caused him to um, become a man and become one of us because he loved that part of us. There's something sanctifiable about the body that it can actually like even though we've fallen it can be restored and then elevated like there's something worthwhile there like the fall wasn't so drastic that like humanity couldn't be redeemed and it's like mm-hmm. oh they screwed up they're done you know because <laughs> the angels they had one choice yeah it was like god or not god yeah and, and the fathers of the church has some interesting like things about how the angels testing went one of the one of the theories i think it was origin that um God showed them the plan of salvation, and um, oh, and the okay. devil said that's not befitting of God. Basically, exactly. Well, it's it's, it's unjust it's in some way, perverting natural order. Kind of like mm. would be their their argument. They're saying like you are, you know, you're giving these humans the beatific vision, which is on par with us, if not above us. But we're a, we're naturally above them, like ontologically. <laughs> yeah, tying exactly. an ontological argument very vaguely. Mm. Um, you know, they they're way far below us as, as like an, an angel. A man is infinitely far below an angel, but and I think Bernard of Clairvaux took it one extra step, which was the devil saw that Mary was going to be the mother huh. of God, and hated that, and wow. that's one of the reasons why he, and then Mary's the instrument by which Satan's crushed, right? Yeah. <laughs> which is so, so cool. So I actually Anyways. think that's that's an argument for God would become man even if man hadn't fallen, because otherwise, Ooh, why yeah. why would the the angels fall if there's a there's a possibility that man doesn't fall then if everything stayed in its natural order you know man below every man below every angel you know and then each man you know arranged in like uh goodness according to their uh different merits various merits there's no reason to rebel if if god wouldn't become a man there's no reason to rebel if god wouldn't become man that's oh that's a good point like originally yeah. So, well, not just be, oh, oh, so that would be, be like necessity that. of the incarnation. So the the incarnation yeah, was a I mean, necessary part of. Yeah, God's you could. Plan. I, yeah. I think you could. Make, you could make a good, solid argument. I think based yeah, on doesn't that, that just go to Scotus and Aquinas? The I think they talked about that, right? I'm not sure. I haven't. I haven't read much because there's the um, like was uh, was the incarnation the first intention of God creating humanity? Huh. And that's something I, I think Scotus says affirmatively, like. When God created humanity, he intended to become incarnate at some point in time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Based on this little argument that we've just sort of come up with right now, I think that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a solid point. <laughs> yeah. 
But like, so even if Adam, if Adam had even said yes and confronted the devil and uh, battled with him and, and died possibly as, as the fathers say, um, then God would have resurrected Adam and then still become incarnate in Christ. It, yeah. Now Christ, it wouldn't be, you know, maybe through the descendants like it was, but uh, God still would have become incarnate because that's the more perfect way to unite man consubstantial with uh-huh. God is through the mediation of an incarnate God, of the incarnate God, <laughs> right? That's Scotus's interpretation. So the only difference is after the fall, if there was no fall, Christ wouldn't have had to suffer and die. But after the fall, humanity is the cause of Christ's suffering and death, but not the cause of his incarnation. Hmm. That would be the argument. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Which I think, but- honestly is kind of befitting to saying like, mm. oh, wow, like man didn't cause God to become man, you know? Yeah. Because it, it almost seems a bit arrogant to say like, yeah, we, you know, on our actions, we we made God become a man. It's like, well, no, you you didn't cause that even even on a purely material level, you didn't cause that. Like, <laughs> like he was going to do it anyways, yeah, right? You just exactly. screwed it up and now he has to go to the cross. <laughs> <laughs> like good on you. Um yeah, and then it puts us like all. Doesn't the catechism say like all men are the authors of Christ uh, suffering and death huh. in some ways? That like well, not we, me, obviously. I'm the best. Yeah, no, but not, not <laughs> us. Obviously, we're after he we're died. We're so, so we, moral. We're so great. I mean, Adam. Yeah, he screwed up, but yeah. Anyways, us, we're, <laughs> exactly. There's so many cool things in Genesis too. I know. But, honestly, it's not. <sighs> oh, it's just so getting, densely packed. Man, I man. Wait, I just want to. Okay, this. It's even more off topic than we've been, but I wanted to ask you, no, you probably don't have a response for this, but I was arguing with my, uh, my Protestant brother a little bit because he said, um, he said he doesn't believe there was any death pre-fall because there's a certain passage in Genesis that says like, I give to, uh, all the birds, all the animals uh, of the earth, all the green food of the earth to eat. So he says, oh, that means, you know, they didn't eat any meat, which means there's no death (laughs) pre-fall. Didn't so eat any I, I just, what I didn't get that connection. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> because the the in Genesis, I think it's Genesis one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a a part of it which says, you know, I give to all the all the all the birds of the air, all the yeah. animals of the earth, or whatever, um, all the green food of the earth to eat. Mm-hmm. And so then, like, I I don't know if there's like a common Protestant thing or just him, but he said like that means there's no uh, death prefall because they had food to eat because they only had green food to eat. They only ate plants. So, <laughs> but didn't the whole phrase say animals too? Do you? No, no. Did I, it classify? I, I give to all the birds of the earth and all the animals oh. of the earth all the green food uh, of the earth to eat. Oh, were they vegetarians? That's not an exact quote. Were they vegetarians before the fall? Exactly. Were they vegans? It's kind of funny. I tend to think no because that sounds stupid. But uh, <laughs> killing animals Sorry, that would yeah. be an interesting thing. But okay, did, would they die? I still think. Um, I mean, the fathers say there was like a. Um, oh, something I heard actually in Dr. Hans' class. The original Hebrew, when Eve gets tempted, um, after she gets tempted and eats the the apple, and then or the apple, the whatever it was, the fruit, the forbidden fruit, it says, and Adam, who was next to her. So while huh. Eve was being oh, tempted, wow. Adam was actually at her side. That's it so wasn't like Adam was out, you know, hanging out. Well, that actually that, that increases guilt quite a bit, actually. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And Hans' interpretation is that um, that Satan, uh, when he appeared to Eve, didn't just appear as like you know, like kind of like a garden snake or something like that, right? But as a 
a giant serpent. Like oh, that wow. it implies that there was a mortal threat being implied by Satan. Wait, how how do you get to the mortal threat part of that? I could go back I could pull up Genesis, <laughs> but um uh hmm. I, I that's from the rabbi's interpretation, like the the Hebrew rabbis, but uh okay. so well, I mean put it this way, when maybe this is a, another clue to that. How did the devil pose a mortal threat to Eve in the in Genesis narrative? Well, when when he says, you know, did God tell you this? Or what did God tell you not to eat? And then Eve says, you know, we are to eat any of the fruit except for the truth of uh, the tree of the fruit of uh, knowledge of good and evil, uh, because in that day uh, we will sh- we will surely die. Mm-hmm. And then the devil says, you will not die, right? So mm. it's the first instance of yeah. any created being going against in any way yeah. what God has commanded yeah. or said or anything else. And right there, there let's go Hobbesian term. He's totally. Um, challenging the sovereignty of God uh-huh. as God being the king over all the universe, the Lord, the one to whom Adam and Eve are to owe their whole lives, their whole legions. Mm-hmm. So when he's challenging it, he's saying, in effect, he's not God, I'm God. Yeah. Or at least God is a deceiver. Yeah. And therefore, you should no longer. So there's a threat of if you say, if you contradict the devil, then you're in a, you're already in a war, basically. Mm hmm. Because there's a a threat of, um, there's a threat of mortal harm in, implied in if God's deceiving you, then He's not giving you something which you're owed. Yeah, which you should have been owed all of it. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I'm the one who knows that, so you need to assent to me as your sovereign. Oh, basically. that's interesting. Uh, you know, if if there's a if there's God if there's a God who's a deceiver and willingly and a liar, then he's evil, and therefore yeah. you shouldn't be under him. I also like that he's as calling a mor- as a moral good being. You shouldn't, and yeah. so the devil is saying, "I'm the moral good being that you should be assenting to." Yeah, yeah, that's how it makes sense. And I mean, also- take it with the the third temptation of Jesus um, in the wilderness with the devil, where the devil says, uh, "If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory of them." And Jesus doesn't challenge him and say, you don't have that authority. Mm-hmm. He doesn't challenge him because yeah. the devil in some sense with humanity, with Adam and Eve being the representatives of humanity, assenting to the devil and his sovereignty, we have made a covenant with the devil, which in the baptismal rites, you know, we have that long, like, do you renounce Satan? Do you renounce uh-huh. his empty promises, his evil works? It's because it's it's literally like destroying the covenantal contract that, Adam and Eve made with the wrong sovereign in the very beginning. That's heavy stuff. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, this is the first time I'm hearing about that. It also sort of ties, he's also calling God irrational in some sense, because he's, (laughs) yeah, he's saying, yeah, "Yeah, you are factually wrong about something, which means you're irrational. And and you're maliciously deceiving. Yeah, maliciously deceiving or factually wrong. You had to go with one of them. Mm. And they go along with it, and then it's like, yeah, they're outside of the family at that point. It's like, look, I give you everything and I give you one command. That puts you back to it's like, um, does God have to explain why he gave one command not to eat? I really don't think so. I mean, it I would seem kind of arrogant to demand reasons from the infinitely perfect being for why you're supposed to do things. It'd be like, mm. be like a two-year-old asking, like demanding from their parent the rationale 
for why they can't like run across the street and it's like oh well if i gave it to you you might not understand anyways yeah. um well you probably wouldn't understand anyways. that's a lot of the atheistic stuff like yeah. why do earthquakes happen in haiti and stuff it's like <laughs> god wouldn't allow that it's like okay do you know more than yeah you know, well if god existed you may not know all his reasons yeah see there is one yeah that the problem of evil is definitely definitely interesting because the the one the one argument i've heard that's okay from the the side of the argument of evil is saying what is saying that the onus is on Christians to show that the problem of evil is not a real problem because um, Christians have to prove that the amount of evil in the world is exactly the amount that it should be, um, or else God's allowing like unnecessary evil for um, no reason. So they, and that's they say, interesting. And then they say, "Oh, but we could decrease the amount of evil in the world arbitrarily by." Um, you know, just like saying like, oh, well, what if we just had one less like animal die of something like there'd be less evil in the world then and everything would be just the same as before. Um, therefore, your idea of, you know, God allowing evil is silly because there's obviously not a perfect amount of evil in the world. Hmm. Yeah, there, there seems to be already in Genesis imperfections inherent, right? If you take if you take Aquinas's idea of like there's uh evil being the absence of good mm -hmm. like well first of all classifying there's a garden of eden right yeah which implies there's non-garden the rest huh. of the rest of the world's a non-garden in a sense that there's like a they say like a walled garden or something like that but mm -hmm. the idea of a garden is a piece of land that you cultivate cultivate and have dominion over Right, so I give you all these animals and everything as food potentially, but here's this garden which you have actual dominion over. Uh huh. And also, there's one tree which you're forbidden to eat, which is let's say a good that's not allowed to you at this point in time. Hmm. If it is a good, I don't know. Maybe it's just. But that would it would make sense that. But anyways, it implies like God has created a a universe here that is in potentiality towards the good, but not actualized all of it. Oh wow. Yeah, I've never, I mean that makes sense, right? Yeah, because because I used to I used to always think of Genesis like, as being like this static, yeah. like plastic, you know, like everything's like a playground, but yeah. there's no. That's funny. So you're saying, well, I don't I don't know if that actually follows though, because how do you make the claim that the world would be better if it was entirely garden? Seems like that's a hard it's a hard claim to make. You could say it'd be better if man's mediate mediatory dominion was over all of it if he was mediating the divine. Oh, okay. Wait, so you're saying man was only man was only given dominion over the garden, and then the garden was not. He was the, given the world was only he was part. given dominion by right over all things. Okay, but he only had actual dominion over the garden at that point in time, and so like there was a mission implied. It seems to me, not could be okay. wrong. Seems to me there's a mission implied in, um, be fruitful, multiply. Mm -hmm. That that means your mission is not terminated until i think it's terminated which yeah. would be god saying that right and so be fruitful and multiply is um yeah be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it mm -hmm. like that's a mission of like humanity in yeah. a natural sense is just be fruitful multiply fill the earth subdue it which mm -hmm. we've, i mean what seven billion people or something we've got along pretty well <laughs> but um um but that was like the natural command and then that implied change it implied i think you know, at least some difficulty, maybe not suffering in that type of sense, but like mm -hmm. a, a movement from uh, potentiality to actuality with regards yeah. to dominion, with regards to and, the earth. With So there's like, 
there it wasn't static it wasn't plastic it mm-hmm. wasn't like everything's perfect already and you see i actually think therein lies the answer to the, the argument i just sort of gave you which is you know there should be a perfect amount of evil in the world such that more good can come about it because uh you know god can bring it about and i think Ooh, the i think the answer yeah and I, I think i think the answer has to do to to that objection atheists make i'm not sure this is a complete answer but i think it has to do with the fact that yeah man is a steward of all creation um so when man falls all creation falls with him because he's the one in charge of it he's the one he's god mediates the like the order of the world through man like man is that that's man's purpose is to sort of it seems like mediate the spirit with the material because man is as man is like a body soul composite so he's as close as he can be to the material well-being spiritual and close as he can be to the spiritual well-being material. Um, so when man falls, um, he disorders everything and creates all sorts of evil and all sorts of natural evil. And most atheists, I think, would say like, oh yeah, you know, the free will argument kind of makes sense for, you know, God allows there to be free will, so there's some evil because of that. But I, I think the argument against natural evil is the same. It's just saying, um, saying no, like natural evil is a consequence of the evil of man's will. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So it's like you would have, you'd have the natural um, without the fall. You'd still have the natural struggle of trying to fill the earth, subdue it, uh, be fruitful, multiply. But you'd you'd be perfectly mediating God's will, you know, mm-hmm. through your will. Um, uh-huh. It doesn't imply a static. But it is very dynamic. Yeah, and, it, just, it just seems like. But if, when we sinned, it's like everything went out of whack. Man's passions were messed up. Um, all sorts of, uh, you know, animals, you know, trying to eat humans and stuff, and like everything in the yeah. natural order becomes frayed and disunified. And uh-huh. hmm. well, I don't think it's. I don't know. Do you think? Okay, so I, I think one of my my brother's main contentions against there being death pre-fall is that it implies imperfection pre-fall because he thinks death is bad therefore you know it can't exist before the fall so we can't have death before the fall mm. do you think that works or what, what are your initial thoughts on that idea death maybe it's tied to um hmm. this may be off off topic but uh, we're so far off okay topic. so uh, yes but <laughs> Christ and Mary being the ones without original sin, uh-huh. there's a, a, a branch of uh, thinkers that think that, well, well Christ says explicitly, um, no one can take my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And uh-huh. I think that's actually, a, that actually may be a metaphysical reality that hmm. man before the fall could only will to die. He couldn't be killed. Oh wow! So Christ and Mary just when- dropping all these nuggets of wisdom <laughs> everywhere, Alex. You gotta calm down. I'm sorry, man. This is my wheel. I love theology. I, so. I need like a. I need like a right. I'm gonna have to watch. This <laughs> We're gonna have later. to, I'm gonna to again, like man, back what you've been talking about. Basically, when Christ is dying on the cross, he's not having his life taken from him. He lays it down at his own accord. Meaning, no matter how many blows and bruises and everything, whatever you could do to Christ, he would have to will to die to let his soul leave his body. Oh my gosh. And the same with Mary that with the dormition. So that's an Eastern concept, isn't it? Yes. So there's the dormition and then there's the um, assumption with, so there's dormition assumption and then there's just assumption where Mary didn't really die. But so the the dormition assumption is Eastern then just assumption is is, uh, is Western. But I would clarify like there are other Westerns uh, who definitely believe dormition as well. So there's arguments for both, but um and what exactly is dormition again? I kind of so basically I'm, I'm that hazy on Mary that. dies, 
and then her soul separates and then she assumes her body's assumed into heaven and then her soul and body are reunited right in heaven. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, there's two people with body and soul in heaven right now. It's Mary and and Christ. But what about the those, same... those Old Testament guys who are taking up body and soul too, right? Oh, that's right. Well, a couple of those bad boys. Yeah, I don't floating know. Floating around them. up there. That's great. Like Elijah and stuff. Yeah, I have no idea. I don't know what to think about that. Chilling in his chariot. Yeah, who knows? But um, yeah, maybe they're up there. But regardless, Mary, in this conception, she wanted to experience, um, imitate Christ in all ways and wanted and willed to die when she was at her old age. And mm-hmm. then experience death, and then her body was assumed into heaven. But so, anyways, so then assumption is just Mary doesn't to die. Is it wait? So is it okay? I'm kind of confused. So is, anyways, the, is the assumption Mary just goes up to heaven without dying and just like you know? Yeah, that basically just, she was. Yeah, she was still alive without physical alive. death. Okay. Yeah, without. Any I would definitely tend death. towards thinking the dormition one then, because it seems seems more like Christ. Right? It, it seems yeah. It, it it just seems like it would be less. I mean, maybe it wouldn't be less fitting. It just seems kind of strange that Christ would die. And then seems Mary to me that the Dormition theory is die. more ancient as well. I mean, yeah. she died in Boom, the Boom, trad points yeah. all the way. Well, yeah. <laughs> that she, I mean, it was in Ephesus, which is in the East. So if there was a tradition more ancient, it seems like it would be more Eastern, uh-huh. just in one regard. But I don't know. Who knows? I wasn't there. Maybe we'll find out in heaven. But um, maybe that's an answer to the theory. And I'm I'm not saying that's the answer, but it makes... With man's original original innocence, original justice, and everything else, that there was nothing in creation that could, um, yeah, that could kill him, and that his body would be self-sustaining as long as he was alive. That's interesting. Yeah, honestly, it makes him kind of more more like a spirit, actually, in the sense that like spirits, they are they actually just choose to die, you know, like death in so far as they can, because like. Like you think like a, a demon or whatever, it literally just chooses death for itself or what's analogous to death anyways. Mm. Um, so that kind of makes sense that mm. pre-fall, the only thing you would, the only way you'd be able to die is just to choose it. Yeah. And it'd have to be in, in accord with the will of God. So that may tie into the mortal threat. Or, it's, just the your, or, if, or it's your own will and you just, you want to be in hell for some reason. Well, then that'd be evil. And then, but, but, but take <laughs> yeah. it this way, right? So. Maybe if you could only it. die by being by willing to die in the sense of like um in the good sense. Yeah, meaning like <laughs> it was God's will that you sacrificed yourself at some point in time. Okay, so take okay. an Abraham Isaac sure. example, right? So if if Satan was posing a mortal threat to Adam and Eve in the garden and they knew they were going to have to fight to stay alive. Mm-hmm. They were going to have to fight for, you know, and it was the will of God that they fight to the death and then it was a will the man, you know, uh, offering himself in sacrifice, mm-hmm. kind of Christ-like sacrifice. Yeah. Well, so you then think they would have fought. You in, think he would have like physically fought? See, I don't know. Or, Once or, again, this is like yeah, this is like seventeen <laughs> steps of speculation. So, but yeah, that's it, what makes it, it fun. Super Anyways. cool to think about. Honestly. Yeah, but he would have fought a mortal, some type of battle. I kind of like the, oh, be the greatest like anime battle of all time. Okay, that, that, remind, well, that reminds me of the stuff. you know the space C.S. Lewis's space trilogy series. Haven't read them. Had them you recommended read to me it? Oh a my lot, gosh. But. Okay. Well, I'll spoil the end for you then. Uh, in that case, great. <laughs> it's that <laughs> spoiler um, alert. The, the character ends up fighting the devil physically. Like he keeps thinking, like you know, he's there. There's this uh, character ransom, and then there's this uh, this girl who's like from Venus or whatever, who's like perfect, a pre-fall creature. Mm. 
Um, and then there's a guy who is being possessed by the devil and he's trying to convince her to fall basically. And like slowly, like by doing like lots of insidious stuff, like telling like seemingly lots of benign stories to her about like, you know, women that are, you know, pursuing their own dreams and doing all this stuff. And then, <laughs> and then like, and, and just feminism, like, right? and yeah, no, and basically, you know, not feminism, exactly, no, kidding, not yeah. limited to that, but basically just using all of this different kind of manipulation. Ransom just thinks that what he's supposed to do is argue against this thing and like, try to like, you know, convince her, you know, stay with it, stick with it. But then eventually he realizes like, no, it's not what I'm supposed to do. I'm just supposed to beat the crap out of this thing and kill it. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Highly recommend the series. Sorry for spoiling it, but it can yeah. never be. It's been out for like gotta, 150 yeah, years, Alex. <laughs> kick evil in the teeth, you know? I mean, that's maybe that's what Adam was supposed to do. Just gotta, He's supposed to. Gotta and, and then you it. also have to have that that element of like, why was Adam letting the devil just start talking to his wife? You know? Yeah. You but, know what I mean? Like, <laughs> without with just this really weird animal, and he didn't step in at all, what assuming it, that yeah. Adam was like right next to Eve and Adam wasn't off somewhere. Like, he didn't. Uh-huh. He let this evil. Into the into the garden. I always wonder how much knowledge Adam had. It's a good point. You know? Yeah, it's it's really curious because in some sense you must think like, well, he's perfect, which means, you know, in some sense he's kind of naive about this kind of thing. So maybe he doesn't he doesn't really understand exactly. You know, well, he obviously doesn't understand what evil is, but you would think that he would be given, at least like the grace to recognize the challenge for what it was. Hmm. I think in order to say there is sin there has to be knowledge that what he's doing is wrong yeah in some way right too because mm-hmm. if it is a sin then maybe he knew he would have had to uh, th- this is another point is like well if they were just duped flat out like what no, what that, sin do they no that's if they had yeah. no knowledge whatsoever that what they were doing was wrong then there wouldn't be any sin but they did know yeah. that they were disobeying god they knew that mm-hmm. but then it's a question of like how much knowledge did they know of like um, yeah, he must have known it was wrong. I guess, yeah, my question is, to what degree did he know it was it was wrong? Obviously, he didn't know all the consequences, but, like, to what extent did he know this was, like, in violation of, like... Yeah, and if, if the devil posed a, a, a threat as well, which I'm, I keep espousing this idea that he did, and it wasn't just some garden snake talking to Eve, but it was a real, like, threatening figure who was also very convincing... Um. You know what role does that play in the guilt of Adam and Eve? Yeah. If if the challenge was renounce this earthly life, renounce your your bodies and and put it all on the line, mm-hmm. all your paradisal uh, happiness, put that all on the line to confront this evil enemy or agree with what he says. Um, it seems like if it's a threat, though, it sort of takes away from the gravity of their decision. Maybe because yeah. I don't know. Sort of an idea. I've always I've always. Maybe I haven't been taught at any specific time, but I've, I've always sort of believed about Adam and Eve was the reason it's such a bad act, and it's one of like the it one of the worst, if not the worst, acts in human history is because it was done with no input whatsoever from like the the senses or anything like that. Like there's no there's no appetites or fear or anything like that because everything is perfectly in accord with your reason. So you can have no excuse because you are a perfectly ordered human. And so when you make a decision, it is a fully human act, a fully human decision. And this one was, yeah, and then you have to figure out, okay, well, what was it that was... Yeah, but the thing, maybe it makes sense to be it, afraid you know, of something was it like kind that. Of like maybe you were afraid, I don't know. Yeah, was it a greed of like, well, maybe... Because the devil does say you will become like gods, knowing uh-huh. good and evil. 
So was it a greed of knowledge? Was it a was it a mortal threat of the devil and not wanting to sacrifice their bodies and their earthly or, life? Or was it just was yeah, it a, mere, merely just pride, just saying like I will be like God? <laughs> <laughs> Boom! Was it all of it kind of meshed together in some ways? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, um, but that's will, why it's so we will speculate. <laughs> we will speculate because it's fun. Yeah, and speculate and speculate pretty well. There, then there's. Oh, and you got to love it with atheism, you know, uh, they, with their evolutionary theory. Am I right? Um, anyways, another, another side tangent, but, um, you know, with so many Catholics today, just thinking evolution goes perfectly with it. When you start talking Adam and Eve, it's all kind of contextualized within, yeah, we all know this is actual bullshit, but, uh, (laughs) but we'll still talk about your nice trite story Uh about some first humans. But what really happened is, you know, monkeys and then like before monkeys, like (laughs) some fish in the ocean before that, some protozoa and before that one single cell that made everything. It is funny. I definitely become more and more disillusioned with evolutionary theory. Like as I've sort of learned a bit more about it, just because, um, have you ever heard of this thing called information theory? No, I have not. So basically just the idea, whenever any kind of signal is transmitted, you lose some of your data. Like it's never a perfect transmission, you know? So for things like, uh, for things like genetics and things like that. Oh yeah. Thank you. Um, so for things like genetics, every time you transmit your data, you're going to get a less perfect signal. And there's also very little evidence of genuine genetic advance. You know, like there's not like what you'll see a lot of the times when like, you know, Darwin's finches and things like that. You'll see these these changes in like their beak size and things like that. And you think, oh, you know, that's evolution. That makes sense. Like it makes me feel yeah. good inside. Like I love that because I'm a Darwinist. <laughs> but then you realize those were genes that were already there. They're only being activated or deactivated. But there's there's almost no evidence, or at least yet to come to my attention, of any unique genes just sprouting out. And it seems like what you would expect based on information theory, which um, I don't know if what you heard me. Um, which is that every time a signal is transmitted, you lose some data. Because right. Yeah. It's, yeah. Oh, it's How always did we progress to more complex things. Exactly. It goes against the principle of entropy. It goes against like any just common sense too. It's yeah. like single cell makes fish. It's like <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Have you seen a fish? Have you eaten a fish? Do you know how complex that is? Dude, it tastes it like, like a- jumps out of the water on occasion. Like it's smart enough not to just. Sometimes it's smart enough if you fish in lakes enough. Certain like they won't take certain bait because they realize like uh, not that they they realize I'm using this a very yeah. generic sense but yeah I mean animals are insanely complex even <laughs> well, just plants are really complex I, it's like what? how did that come from a single cell like oh man try and sell me something else Darwin like yeah that's just a absurd theory and I, that that under underpins all of you know our or our biology today and all this type of stuff and it completely dem- demolishes. I think morality, the Genesis stories, uh-huh. total atheistic conception of world. Yeah. And just to relate this kind of the Genesis story, like, you know, aging is actually the compilation of genetic errors in the human genome. So like aging is literally like your genes not reproducing correctly over time. Oh, right. Yeah. Like that's what it is. And so it makes a lot of sense when I hear like when I read in the Bible and I see like all of these people, you know, when they're closer to the source, which is perfect genetics which they're is like 1500 exactly old, you know? they live for a super long time it, it makes sense because like your genes are reproducing more perfectly um so yeah then it's, it's an interesting imagine idea if you looked like you were 20 when you're you know like 150 years old or something i would like be that. so i would be so bored i think <laughs> yes, i get true. i've already bored now all the time and like <laughs> i don't even have yeah that's a great point yeah <laughs> what is it like 
yes, most people live like 70 years, something like that, 80 years. Yeah. Like, that's a long ass time. I mean, it seems like a long, I guess once I get to 60, it'll seem like You'll, you'll think it's long, a lot shorter. But yeah. I'll be like, no, why? <laughs> yeah, the psalmist does say like, you know, 70 years, it passes like a breath. It's, is there like a blade of grass that sprouts in the morning and then dies in the evening or something like that? Mm. You're like, I'm sure I'll feel that way when I'm old, but right now I'm like, I got a lot of time. I could do a lot of stuff, you know? Yeah. But that's crazy what you're talking about with, but that makes sense. Like if, would there be death pre-fall? What if all those natural things were put in order such that, and if there's no mortal threat to humanity, See, then it's it's not that you have to posit some type of immortality of the body. You just mm-hmm. have to posit a a uh, self um, a self sustaining biological principle. Yeah, like 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 God designed the biology of the human body that if there were no mortal threats posed, meaning there were no like attacks from lions or whatever, there were no uh, natural disasters that could have could have done him done him in. Um, then man would have just continued to just I, I think ate, it, you know I think it makes on. I think it makes more sense to say that it would only be man who wouldn't experience death, but you'd still have animal death. Um, hmm, and okay. I, I think that's true one because like. Aquinas makes this argument um, that the nature of things don't change based on sin. So, like, the nature of a lion wouldn't change, and its nature is to consume the flesh of other animals. Its nature wouldn't change based on the fall of the natural order of things. Like, it wouldn't be eating plants, like, pre-fall. Um, so, I lost track. What was the what was the first part? What, was the, what did you say that led into that? Just a self-sustaining biological principle. You know, like... Because going back to what your your brother was saying about um, oh right right yeah about death yeah so I I think it makes more sense then to say like it would only be man who would be preserved because he's the only one with sanctifying grace which Mm. is sort of like the principle the principle of life in you really like the in reality like it's the the supra principle of life in you right so it makes sense I I think it I think you can make an argument saying man wouldn't have had death but animals still would have had death because death and consumptions in their in their nature hmm. Dang, we've covered a lot already. <laughs> so got like 25 minutes or so uh, until five, but we got from ontological argument all the way deep into some Genesis theology. Yeah, but it, I, I mean, mean it's, I think it's really, it's really necessary too, because, um, I mean, it goes all, I feel like we, I, I kind of makes sense what we did. We went, you know, we did ontological argument for yeah. God's existence and we general atheist objections and then atheist they objections. always center around Adam and Eve and Genesis and how silly that is. So yeah. And I feel like it's let's a just stop on evolution for a second again, because it's just like, when even when you're if someone's really engrossed in an evolutionary worldview and they really that's how they see the world i don't see how you salvage morality i don't see how you salvage reason i don't see how you salvage um religion i don't see how you salvage god i really think it's one of the most because it goes it goes right to the heart of genesis and says no all mm-hmm. that's really just i don't see how you salvage darwinism like i don't see how you can say darwinism is true when you undermine yeah, your faculty yeah. of reason i it's, i don't know it goes back to this like it's once determined okay it, deterministic yeah. yeah well it undermines it in a different way too rather than just undermining reason directly it also undermines reason uh, by another way of determinism because if all there is is material which you've made this claim that all there is is material based on reasoning and proofs which would be disproved by saying you know all reasoning is material but anyways you get determinism why can you trust anything that you believe if you had no decision in whether or not you believed it? Like, I don't know. It just, it's kind of the basic objection against Whoa, determinism. Man. I mean, that's like that's the classic crazy. objection, no, but, yeah, but true. You, you had no input. It was 
it wasn't it wasn't because of the truth of the proposition that you believe the proposition. Um, it was because of pre-existing material factors in your brain and in your society that you believed it. So there's no you have no basis for for making any of these claims, especially in trying to convince other people of these claims when you literally have no logical basis for it. I think that's similar to what Jordan Peterson said in his Sam Harris debate. I don't know if you saw that, but he, he was making similar argument of like, if you're so convinced of this stuff, why are you? And then Sam Harris was like, well, human flourishing. It's like, what the hell is that? Yeah, it's like, why do I give a crap about human flourishing, yeah. Sam Harris? I, I want you to die. I want you not to flourish. <laughs> no, just no, kidding. No. If no. That's what I'm saying with absurdism. I mean, all good, all good to Sam Harris, you know. Yeah, he seems, no, like a de- yeah, yeah. seems like a decent dude. Death you know. to Sam Harris! Ah! No, no, but it's like, it's like, what if I don't care about human flourishing? What if I want everyone to die because it'll make me feel happy inside? There's another guy who's like moderating Douglas Murray, I think, but he, he seemed to be a little bit more in- intelligent about that, that element of it. It's like... These three uber smart guys sitting in front of this crowd in Dublin and arguing about God and stuff. And it's like, if if there's no God and like, what are you doing up here trying to convince me? You know, like, yeah, why aren't you just trying to get as much power for yourself? And I think that was um, that's kind of like how Machiavelli took it with politics, too. He's like he was describing all this stuff and he's like how to be a good prince. But you're like, why are you describing how uh-huh. to be a good prince in it, like you could just summarize it as. Any way you can to make power, you should do it. And here's the best ways I've figured out. Yeah. It's like, why do you want to communicate that to somebody? Why not just do that yourself? Yeah. Which is why I really like people like Nietzsche. Because like, there's an idea of sort of like the gravitas of the claim that they're making. Like there's transcendence and pain and awe that goes along with it. Which yeah. is like, like they say like, yeah, we're claiming this thing. And like, we're humbled by it because it's a it's a radical claim on reality, which, you know, is is super daunting and depressing to us. Um, so at least there's that honesty there, whereas the modern atheist approach is more just sort of arrogance and flippancy and, you know, just, <laughs> you know, hitch slap, hitch slap you, yeah. hitch slap you in the face. <laughs> it's just so frustrating. Okay, Dan, should we argue these people then? Should we argue with them? Like, yeah. you mean, should we, should we engage with people when they're yeah. in? Yeah, I think we need to hitch slap them back. I think we have better arguments, so there's no reason not to slap somebody. And like, like I was saying, like I think this the ontological argument is a it's a good argument for at least like ripping people out of that kind of mindset because you see these three clear premises. You can't point to any obvious flaw, um, and even if the argument doesn't follow ultimately, like which which we're undecided about, you at least like have been slapped into thinking about it instead of just in this mindset of thinking like because i feel like when people watch tons of these like hitch slap videos they sort of just think like all of these christian arguments or all these arguments for god are just kind of like silly and you know there's kind of out of hat and i can just sort of dismiss them because the whole thing is kind of dumb hmm. dude i'm on the almost opposite i'm just like i give up i'm not gonna try and deal with them <laughs> It's just annoying. Dude, it's you gotta, just so annoying to me. Dude, it's fun though. You gotta, you gotta fight. See, with Dan, you. maybe it's fun for you. <laughs> Dan, you're like, yeah, let's go, let's go. But I think for me and for, I mean, I, I, just I know of, the arguments and stuff, but like at some point, I'm just like, these guys have so much, just ingrained, uh, what what they believe. It's so, and then, it, but put it the other way, like, yeah, I do too, like. I believe in God very firmly. Like you're not going to get me out of that, and and the Catholic faith too. And we could hash it out, but it always ends up with the more arrogant and um, the more quick on their feet, sophisticated side of these kind of like internet debates is like, well, that person truly won and all that stuff. And 
Yeah. I don't I, know I if it makes a it almost cheapens it almost gives credence to their absurdism by debating them in some now look, I'm all for the free speech stuff, but like yeah. some people are so convinced of their arguments and also convinced that you're an absolute idiot that at that point those type type of conversations be end up being really like because the whole thing's framed in a way that atheism actually makes sense somehow. Yeah. See, I like, don't know. but we're talking right here how absurd it is just in a conceptual level. Well, but I, maybe, maybe it's still worth it having those conversations. Alex, I definitely I don't think know. so. Look, we've just been really bad at it recently. But like, what we need to do is we just need to be quicker. You know, we have better arguments. We're cooler. We're more fun to be around. We're more put together. You know, we actually enjoy life and don't have a reason to be depressed all the time. Um, we've got more to look forward to than just trouncing a bunch of uh, atheists, unlike atheists have to look forward to. Um, so I, I think like, yeah, we're we're the best and we should totally just punch them in the face. We the best. <laughs> I'm telling you, we the best. Right. Maybe not for me. Maybe for you, Dan. <laughs> Look, I'll definitely, if, I, I if don't it think comes I'm... up with somebody like, like, dude, I, I'd love to have uh, you atheists out there, probably no one, probably all you Catholics, hopefully. But if you're an atheist out there listening to this, yeah, give we'll we'll get you on the Keller and Alex show and get you uh, get you rolling. I mean, I I'd like, love to have conversations like that, but like the debate setting for me is just so um for these type of ideas of atheism is just no, like honestly, I, I, I do like the the like the sort of Jordan Peterson setup more where it's just sort of a conversation and you're trying to be polite. Because you know, we've been kind of rude to the atheist side here, which is like it's kind of fun, you know. They can be rude to us on their their podcast, and we can be rude to them on ours, and you know, it's kind of fun, you know, rib them a little bit. Yeah. But uh I think it's probably better to do it in a setting where it's not just like debate. You get three minutes to open or whatever like that and do more sort of like what we're doing now and just kind of have a conversation, you know, feel out the worldviews and just kind of like just kind of talk Can you have a debate with somebody who doesn't have a basis for reason though? I mean, well, I think you can because I I think they firmly believe they have a basis for reason. Which is reason itself? Kind of tautological or what? I mean, don't ask me what that is. That's that's their purview. Yeah, I know, but like they ultimately don't. No, they really I mean, we're we're mostly in agreement on they that. They really yeah. don't, but I feel like people usually don't attack them on that. People usually attack them just on like the arguments for the existence of God. You know, they just like, you know, they're like, oh, I'm in a debate. You know what that means? I just open up the summa and read it. Um, <laughs> so like, and it's like, well, I mean, those are those are good arguments, but one, they're like, they're always like quote unquote debunked by atheists all the time, so they're not going to be terribly convincing to anybody who has already watched like a million videos of their supposed debunking which i've watched a bunch of them i have yet to see anyone that actually debunks any of the arguments even even aquinas is like like his uh his like order way or whatever that one is like the order of things i haven't even seen a good argument against that one which i don't even like that one that much um so yeah i i yeah we have better arguments we should definitely engage with them it's always tough to engage with them because <laughs> it it they always seem to pose it in terms of you need to prove to me that God exists and not like that that to me once you put it in those terms of like you have to show me enough evidence it's like you'll never show an atheist enough evidence to believe well, God exists. you have to ask them one what is their criteria for evidence which you ask that you say what evidence do you want and they're just gonna say oh I don't I don't really know because they never thought about that and. Yeah. You can also just say well, they don't have a criteria and, for it. And you can also just say, are you asking for physical evidence? So you're asking for the only kind of evidence which wouldn't exist for the kind of thing that we say exists. It's like, oh wow. So yeah, we literally say there's a spiritual reality that's more real than this material reality, and it doesn't really touch the material reality. And they say, 
give me some physical evidence of that. And then you're like, well, that, that's kind of silly. You're just basing that on your worldview, which says everything's material. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're assuming we're wrong and asking for arguments based on your conception of reality. You're assuming we're wrong. Yeah. And yeah, so we, and also just like the, the scientific method, we should just say like, oh, so you think, you know, every belief should be, you know, supported by the scientific method. And I think we have to do more of this, which is like getting behind the arguments and just say, well, you, you can't show me a physical evidence that scientific method's true um, because it's, it's a method. Maybe <laughs> and it's because I've been up here for too long of a Franciscan, but I forget that people believe this garbage. Yeah. I mean, me, <laughs> about me, me science too, me too. and about evolution, and about other stuff. Like, yeah. It's so, and then maybe it's just because I'm, I'm getting, as I'm getting like further along in my studies and stuff, I'm just getting more and more curt and annoyed. And maybe it should be the opposite that I'm like more understanding, but I'm like far less ready to no, just be definitely, understanding. Definitely the temptation is like once you just, you know, all their arguments and like, because in some ways, atheism kind of is an ideology, at least as it is in sort of like the internet sphere of like yeah. what they all believe. So like you know exactly what a lot of them are going to say to any argument you present. We've heard them before. And so then it's, it is kind of difficult to engage. And I mean, I don't think there's any corresponding really like rudeness on the Christian side. Maybe, maybe there is, or, or I guess just the, the religious side in general. Um, no, I'm yeah. I'm all for being rude. And <laughs> I'm pretty rude myself. <laughs> Somehow that doesn't surprise me. No, yeah, I mean... <laughs> What what was it? Um, yeah, I mean, Aristotle st- starts Nicomachean Ethics with like, there are some people you can't teach ethics to because they're so far ethically, like morally wrong already uh-huh. that they don't want to behave ethically to begin with. And then there's another one like, um, what was it? Uh, I think it was Avicenna who was saying like, someone asked him, what if you come across a person who denies the law of non-contradiction? That... A can't be A and not A at the same time. I think I know where this is going. In the same respect. And then this is Nick's famous one. He, he <laughs> said, well, I think those type of people should be bound hand and foot and tortured and burned until they realize that being tortured and burned <laughs> is not as good as being not tortured and burned. <laughs> yeah. And there's, I don't I know. I, that I find that same no, I had, a, I had a, a Muslim uh, co-worker. I told him that quote and like <laughs> he loved it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's great. Yeah. It is really great. But um it just goes to that same thing. It's like they're so so self-absorbed, whatever intellectual, like I got it all figured out and stuff. Oh, I know my this is this is my approach. All right. I'm gonna Dostoevsky, once again, he's got it perfect. This comes from demons uh, or the possessed, depending mm-hmm. on your translation. Probably one of my favorite Dostoevsky works, and one of the ones that everyone sleeps on and doesn't doesn't actually read, but it's great. So there's this uh, one character named Nikolai who is super intellectual. Uh-huh. Uh, he comes from a very well-established family. He's super handsome and can do whatever he wants. And he's kind of an absurdist. He's he's moved from atheism to be just kind of like, I'm just going to screw around just because I can. And um, there's an, another character named Shatov who is really admires uh, Nikolai, but Nikolai doesn't really pay him much attention. Mm-hmm. So they finally get to talk and, and Shatov's like, giving it all out there. Like, I'm telling you your whole theory, what you told me, Nikolai, I'm just saying exactly what you said. You said God doesn't exist, that God is just, uh, he said, you believe that God is the synthetic personality of a people's taken from beginning to end. Wow. That if you if you take what all the people think and their personality and, and uh, you you abstract that, like for the Greeks, the, the purest abstraction of like the greatest Greek life was their Greek gods, basically, mm-hmm. and Romans as well. And you said, that, you know, the Romans had their God and the Greeks, and that's what God is. And there's a Russian God, right? 
And um, and then eventually uh, Nikolai's like, okay, well, do you believe in God? And he says, I want to believe in God. But he doesn't say whether he does or not. Wow. And then um, Shatov looks at him and said, but, but you, you say you don't believe in God. And um, he says, uh, you know, he says, I know how you can get back to believing in God. And Nikolai is kind of taken aback, like, you really think I can, you know, get back to believing in God? And hmm. he said, go and work as a peasant. <laughs> <laughs> he said, and then you'll find God. Huh. He doesn't give him an argument. He doesn't deny any of the arguments that, wow. that, that uh, Nikolai's made. Reminiscent of Pascal's advice, actually. Yeah. Well, yeah. He's <laughs> like, go and work as a peasant for a few years. Go and like till the soil work hard labor, you'll find God in that. Not by any argument, not by any convincing. Yeah. He said, you're just so, he said, you're an atheist because you're a snob. That's what <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's definitely a possibility of that, just getting so caught up in your own mind that you don't just stop and think. Yeah. Just think. Sorry, I missed that line. He calls him a snob first and then oh. <laughs> he says the word peasant word. Classic. But I mean, that's, I almost want to like sneer at these people and just call them snobs. Because huh. in a certain respect, you definitely it's, do, like, you it's do so see absurd that. to... Like you see that in Dawkins, especially, I, I feel. Which, when even when I was sort of struggling with atheism, like I disliked Dawkins just because he's so rude and he's so like... They're so snobby. Yeah, yeah, like snivy. I don't yeah, even know. Yeah, yeah, like like a right little, word. little like, trite like put downs and all this stuff. Yeah. You're like, like a little kid. It's yeah, like... It's not great. You're like a little kid who's like, I don't believe in God and stuff. There's actually another... Uh, there's this meeting of all these like revolutionaries or whatever. And there's this one kid who's like an extremely obnoxious atheist. She's, uh, she's like 17 or something. And she's just randomly like, we all know that God doesn't exist and that we, people only believed in religion because of like lightning and they were scared of things <laughs> and all this stuff. And then, uh, her grandfather's actually in, in the room with them and he's an old general and he's like, what do you know of God, you chicken? And he's like, <laughs> He's like, you know, we used to believe in God and all this stuff. And then she like completely denounces him to his face and like insults him and all this stuff. And you're just like, what am I reading? This is nuts. But there's a, there's kind of a, I don't know. Look, any atheists out there, there's a snobbery with atheism that you're so certain. Um, it's, um, it's, it's really, it, it doesn't lend itself in the, in the right way. And so that all, all that to say, I think, Going through real experiences in life, and mm-hmm. I think Dostoevsky points to this, is like we I think atheism is is one of those products of a modern age so detached from reality in mm-hmm. a lot of ways that we've created these systems where you can live your entire life in a in a virtual sphere and you can live your entire life really detached from what the most of humanity has lived, which is subsistence farming, ha- raising a family, having lots of kids. That is more conducive to the natural human element of like having a god, and uh-huh. and um, once and, we've once we've made these continual um, pushes away from what's naturally human and more artificially set up, and you could even say maybe like the the state polity, like this politic type idea, like this Tower of Babel we've been building mm-hmm. for ages, is um, like. Is the modern state really better than our kind of subsistence, feudal, Catholic, medieval ages? Of which everyone in modern India is like, well, they didn't have iPhones. They didn't have the internet and all this stuff. And it's like, but- But were they happy? But were they, yeah. Were they living a life in accord with virtue tending towards heaven? Yeah. See, it just seems like a a bad tactical place for atheists to be. Because it's like, you can only run off of uh, like sort of 
pride and insults for so long. And, I mean, I mean, honestly, like if you're if you're gonna convince Christians, like you have to beat them at their own game. It's like you have to be intellectually humble, polite, happy, and like raise good families, and just everyone will look at you and want to be like you. It seems like that's ultimately the best argument. The best argument for any belief system is I can live well in accordance with this belief system. Um, and true and human that, flourishing. That, like that, Sam yeah, Harris true, true human flourishing is what convinces people of positions, not proofs at the end of the day. Right. Um, and atheists don't really have it, unfortunately. And so for me, trying to, and I, I think there's, ex, like you were pointing out, there's great value in taking on these atheists head to head with these I think I think it works flip side. I think we have to beat them at their own game. Yeah. And yes. However, I think the more important game is showing how our lives are so much greater than this kind of, you know, childish intellectual snobbery of atheism. Yeah. And that's once again, and I, I, my true sensei Dostoevsky (laughs) keep going back to, he demonstrates that in his book. So Nikolai, you read demons. He does not have a good time of it, even though he thinks he's totally correct and all this stuff. Um, he can't escape his, um, his intellectual snobbery and his atheism, and it informs his decisions in such a way that leads him to really bad depths. Mm. And he doesn't have the character to, he doesn't have the the escape of God, if you put it as an escape, to get him out of there. Yeah. Or just the grounding. The grounding, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> same with Brothers Karamazov and Ivan. Ivan's very similar to Nikolai as well. And, and Ivan has that same, um, he can't figure out he, he can't lead himself to belief and it's belief that would get him out of the really evil that he's kind of in, ensconces himself uh-huh. in. Um, and it, a lot of it is this, um, yeah, the slavery of desire to, um, comfort and, and whatever else. And it's like, if, if atheism is true, everything is permissible. Right. And then mm-hmm. you can, that's crime and punishments yeah. thing. Right. <laughs> If once you have atheism, everything's permissible and there's there's no barrier to you doing whatever you want. But the problem is you become deterministic to what you want. Exactly. I think that's Jordan Peterson's point, isn't it? He says like the great thing about atheism is you can do whatever you want. But, but then, that's the worst thing the about The worst it. thing about atheism is you can do whatever you want. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Because desire unhinged you, reality you become just a, becomes animalistic. And uh, honestly, it seems like that's that's all of God's punishments are just him letting us run the course of our own sin, just, you know, playing in our own mud and sinking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like he, he's not going to punish us by doing unjust actions towards us. It's mm-hmm. just, it's just letting us experience the natural consequences of what we do. Jeez, man. Holy crap. It's five, five o'clock. That <laughs> Two hours, they really did blow by. It did blow by. Yeah. Goodness. Oh, we didn't, oh, well, we didn't get to, um, uh, Aquinas is on being an essence argument, but that's okay. Okay. Did you you want to say just briefly? Um. Well. It. Yeah. I'll just. I'll just briefly go. I. I enjoy Aquinas's argument and on being in essence a lot better than the ontological argument because it's kind of the inverse. Whereas Anselm argues from the concept of God that the fact that the essence and existence of God are the same that means that um that God exists. Like that's what Anselm does. Mm. Whereas what Aquinas argues is okay. We can see a material thing has an essence and an existence that are distinct. Like, and you can obviously just see that by saying, you know, I have, I can think of an imaginary cup without the cup actually existing 
which means there's a difference between an actual cup and a cup that I can just think about. So there's, there's a difference between the concept and the existence of things. And he says, but this can't go on indefinitely because that means like things like concepts are always, you know, latching onto existence, getting it from something like, like essence and existence are always coming together. Mm. But where does the being come from? If not from something that has its being and its essence as the same identical thing. It has being in its essence. Oh, right. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Which has to be God. Uh-huh. Yeah. Exactly. So he sort of argues from the material towards the the essence and the existence of God being the same thing. He reasons there, which, I mean, I won't go super in-depth into the whole thing, mm-hmm. but that that's his conclusion. Whereas Anselm, from the starting point, says basically the essence and existence of God are the same thing, and then that necessitates his existence. Got it. Hmm. So Aquinas I, is a bit different. <laughs> yeah. So Aquinas is a bit different. I just, uh, I, I think it, it seems just a little bit more firm to me. And like, I don't, I don't go around questioning that because it just seems, oh, it makes sense. Like essence and existence in all things are distinct, but then where does the existence of each thing come from? Like, like existence has yeah. to have some an, an essence. Like it has to, it has to exist in itself of some right for other concepts to get being. Yeah. Right. That has to be God. Yeah. <laughs> and that's on in in on being in essence right yeah, aquinas that's yeah. On, yeah. And if you guys want to read so the five ways of aquinas fantastic uh proofs for god's existence and there's a whole whole lot there uh there's tons of commentaries on it as well peter craves commentary on it on a shorter summa was my entry into it huh. really liked it on being in essence and then uh anselm's ontological argument uh also check out pascal's wager for you guys out there <laughs> maybe that well, you'll find it convincing, but uh, yeah. So let me see. After the two hours, we still believe in God. I, I think we do. I actually okay. started out claiming <laughs> God did not exist, if you remember. I do I, remember. I, Are I you think convinced, Dan? I, I've come around. I've come around. Anselm's got you. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. He's got me by the summa. Dude, Dan, thank you for coming on the podcast. This uh, has been fire. This yeah, has been, been great. something else. We went off on Genesis for a while too, but it was really, really good stuff. So we uh, love to have you back on. All right. Thank you. Talk some more. Thank you guys so much for listening to this edition of the Kellen and Alex show. We'll be back soon enough. Uh, Another fire podcast, maybe talking about homeschooling actually pretty soon. Also want to get Josh Fibes in on this podcast with Hobbes. I want to get into some political philosophy pretty heavy. Uh, So that's going to wrap it up for us. And uh, thanks so much for listening. Peace out.